January 23rd, 1968, the USS Pueblo, U.S. Navy intelligence ship, was hijacked by North Korean uh, patrol boats in international waters off the coast of North Korea. Uh, And for 11 months, this proved to be a a difficult situation with tense diplomatic and military standoffs uh, back and forth. 82 surviving crew members that were aboard the Pueblo uh, were taken captive, and of that 82, at least 13 of the men were, were taken into a room every day and were marched into sit around a table uh, for hours each day. And after several hours, the door to this room flew open and a North Korean guard brutally beat the man in the first chair with the butt of his rifle. The next day, the 13 men were marched back to that same room and were placed in the same chairs around that same table And again, that same door flew open and a guard beat that first man, the same man as the day before with the butt of his rifle. The third day, the same thing. Now three times in three consecutive days, that same man has been beaten by the guard. And knowing that this man could not survive a fourth day, the men that were also in the room, the other sailors, came together and decided to take his place. And so one man stepped forward. And the next day, when the guard walked in, uh, there was a new man sitting in the chair, unknown to him, and he took the beating. And so for several weeks, a new man would step forward each day to sit in that horrible chair and undergo the, the, the brutal beating that was awaiting as soon as that door swung open. Eventually, the guards gave up. This kind of sacrificial love and sacrifice for one another was unbreakable. And church family, this morning, Mark is showing us this reality in our text, except with infinite uh, measures and with eternal consequences in mind. There are differences, though. The the differences being that for each of us, we're each and every one of us the person in that first chair. Yet our fate is not just a, a brutal beating. Our penalty is death. We've sinned against a holy God, and we deserve the full wrath of God, eternal death. And knowing this fully, Christ has traded places with each and every one of us and taken the death blows that we deserved, not in some team effort, but completely alone. And we see that in the text this morning. By himself, completely abandoned, he takes our rejection. He takes the death penalty that each of us deserved. We see that rejection of Jesus in our text this morning. And and friends, here's the, the hope that we have. Easter's coming. We get to celebrate Easter this year in September. (laughs) That's exciting. Easter's coming. Our king is going to come back from being dead and conquer death by his resurrection. And that's exciting. But we have to get through the next two weeks first. And we have to see that we put him there. As Michael prayed, we have to see that our rejection of Christ led to the beating that we're going to see this morning. And is going to lead to the crucifixion that we're going to see next week. Each and every one of us. We're responsible and, as Michael prayed, culpable in that. And so this morning, we see that rejection continuing. We watched it take place last week. We'll watch it continue to unfold this morning. Uh, And so this morning, four sources of rejection that we see uh, this morning in our text. I think that if we're honest, all of us can, can relate. It should be convicting to us because at some point we've all experienced where we're going to see the different scenes in the text unfold and the rejection that takes place uh, toward Jesus as a result. And so the first one, 
The first one in our text this morning is that fake piety or false religion leads to a rejection of Jesus. Fake piety, false religion leads to rejection of Jesus. Read with me verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a, a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, uh, there's a transition taking place in our text that if you were not here last week, you may miss, um, because last week we saw the official rejection of Jesus take place from the Sanhedrin. The religious leaders of that day, all 70 of them, gathered him in this room and they condemned him. As the religious elite in Jerusalem, they've already made their pronouncement. And so that's the night before, and now they've brought Jesus, it's, it's morning time, and they've gathered together and they've, they've, uh, they've come together for a specific reason. You see, the night before, when the high priest heard Jesus confess that he was the Messiah, he, he tore his robes. He shouted, blasphemy, this can't be the case. And uh, at this point, Jesus has been abandoned. He's been left alone. He's been betrayed by his followers. And so they begin to interrogate him. They mock him. They spit upon him. Actually, last week in our text, they cover his head with a cloak, and they begin to punch him and beat him in the face and the head. And so their rejection, the rejection from the religious elite, was made quite clear last week as they spit on him and as they proved it with their knuckles. And so you may wonder, why is there so much hate-filled rejection of Jesus? Why, why, are they, they being, why are they being so hateful towards one who was so full of mercy and compassion? Well, I'll give you three reasons. Three reasons that I think we see that, that, that lead us and lead them in the text to allow fake religion or false piety to... Uh, be a rejection of Jesus. Number one, he was a threat to their authority and their position. When you think about this, we've seen this throughout the, the Gospel of Mark. They're in control of this culture because this culture is a religious culture and they're in charge of that religion. And so there's an incredible amount of power that comes with that. And Jesus was turning popular opinion away from them as the religious leaders and toward himself by simply demonstrating his superiority over them. In power, he's able to do miracles and, and heal and cast out demons and, 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 and all sorts of things. He's exercised his authority over nature. In wisdom, he's demonstrated himself to be superior and that they can't trap him in any of their uh, questions or riddles. And friends, power is addictive. Those who have it are so caught up in that addiction that they'll do whatever they have to do to continue that habit, to maintain and support that addiction. Jesus was a threat to that. Number two, I think they, they, uh, they saw Jesus as not the kind of Messiah that they were hoping for and wanting. They were wanting a military leader. They were wanting someone who would come in and lead an army to establish Israel's political freedom. This is not what Jesus had come to do. He was not the, the Messiah that they wanted, that they hoped for. And then third, he exposed their sinfulness. And here's where the rubber hits the road for every person in this room. Jesus demonstrated that, 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 that they were in, inferior, that they were full of sin, even as religious leaders, even as people that would claim uh, a heightened religious understanding and, 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 and righteousness. They were in sin. He showed, showed them this when he cleansed the temple. He showed them this when he, when he pointed out their sinfulness every time they tried to come and trap him with questions. He pointed out their hypocrisy. He exposed their sinfulness by simply demonstrating his own righteousness and holiness. Kent Hughes gives an illustration uh, in his uh, commentary on this that I think is helpful. Uh, he says an African chief 
um, visited with, with some missionaries at a missionary station. And while they're visiting, uh, they're talking, they're engaging one another outside the missionary station. And the African chief saw a, a little round mirror fastened to a, the trunk of a tree. And as the chief looked at this mirror, he saw in the mirror his own reflection with, with his war paint on and his disfigured face making a, an angry face. And as he's gazing at his, own, as it, at his own frightening countenance, he cries out, Who is this horrible looking person that's inside the tree, that's caught inside this tree? And the missionary, trying not to laugh, says, Oh, well, that's, that's not a person inside the tree. You're actually seeing your own reflection in the glass. And the African chief says, well, uh, he, he wouldn't believe that this is the case until the missionary took the mirror off and handed it to him. And he was actually able to hold the mirror and see that there was nobody on the other side of it. And he says, I must have this glass. Will you sell it to me? And the missionary says, no, I can't sell it to you. And, but the chief continued. He begged until finally the missionary relented and sold the, the African chief the, the mirror. And the chief says, I will never let this thing make these faces at me again. And with that, he threw it on the ground and stomped onto it and, and, and shattered it into a million pieces. And this is precisely what the religious establishment is doing to Jesus. They're taking the mirror for their souls. They're taking Christ who's identified their unrighteousness, their sinfulness, their hypocrisy, and, and, and they're, they're dashing him to pieces. And they think that nailing him to a cross is in some way going to do away with him, but it only magnifies their sinful reflection. Fake piety, false religion always leads to a rejection of Jesus. It did for the Sanhedrin, and it certainly will for us today. The moment that we think that we're good enough on our own or that we have any sort of of merit before God, that somehow we've earned God's love or forgiveness or that we deserve, we're worthy of his love, then we've we've just given clear evidence that we don't understand the gospel. We have no idea. The gospel says that we could never be good enough, that even our good works are as filthy rags, that we need a substitute, one that could die for us and take our sinfulness in himself. Being raised in a Christian home, being Baptist, being here every time the the doors are open, none of that will save you. Only the atoning blood of Christ will save you. And these religious leaders couldn't see that. They couldn't see that because they were so focused on their own ability to, to please God by themselves. A false religion, a fake piety. Notice where it leads them in verse 1. We've already read it. The chief priests, they come together with the elders and the the Sanhedrin, and they have this powwow. They have, have this conversation together. Well, why is it that they would meet early in the morning, as the text says, and do that? Well, one, it was a legal necessity. Their Jewish rules and laws prohibited them from convicting criminals at night. So that would have been required to meet the next day. But additionally... Uh, they didn't have the power as a religious court uh, to pass a death sentence. They didn't, the Sanhedrin didn't have that authority. They needed uh, the governor, the Roman governor, for capital offenses. And so they needed to deliberate. They needed to come together in this powwow to decide an offense that they could charge Jesus with that would actually be significant enough that the Roman governor would care. <laughs> um, and so they come together. Remember, Pilate, he has... He, He has no dog in this fight. He doesn't care about this religious squabble. And so they come together and they decide to to say that Jesus has claimed to be king. You see, this would have been something that that Rome would have have saw as a a heinous crime. Someone deciding that their king themselves would have been a threat to Rome. And so this is a crime that Jesus would have certainly uh, been killed for. And so they decide that's what they're going to charge Jesus with. And so they bring him before Pilate with this 
this charge, this fake and phony uh, charge before Pilate. And here's where we see religious rejection or uh, a fake piety leading to a rejection of Jesus morph into a different rejection of Jesus. We see it move from the religious elite who've rejected Jesus because of their own sense of, of religious understanding to now they're, we're moving to Pilate who rejects Jesus for a totally different reason. Rejects Jesus because of his own self-centeredness. So our second point. Self-centeredness leads to a rejection of Jesus. We see this in verses 2 through 15 as we see Pilate's part in all of this. Uh, Self-centeredness leads to a rejection of Jesus. To see Pilate's self-centeredness, though, and how that led led to a place where he would ultimately reject Jesus, you need to know a little bit about Pilate. You need a little backstory on him. See, Pilate worked his way up through the ranks in Rome. He would have served in numerous civil and military appointments before finally reaching the rank of procurator in uh, the region of Judea. He was a stern ruler, a harsh governor. Um, It's actually recorded in history that he insulted the Jews numerous times. Uh, One of them, and again, remember the Jews in Judea, that's who he's supervising. That's who he's supposed to be um, um, being governor over. And yet he brings his own soldiers in with flags bearing the image of his boss, Caesar. And he places them all throughout Jerusalem. This infuriates the Jewish people. Further, he goes into their treasury, into the temple, to the treasury. And he takes money that he uses to build an aqueduct. And if anybody were to try to refuse or to stop him from doing that, he had them beaten. He goes further, though. And it says in history that we, we learn that he ultimately loses his job because he orders a cavalry of soldiers to go in and attack Samaritans who are worshiping at Mount Gerizim. The 4th century historian Eusebius tells us that life went so badly for Pilate after this moment at Mount Gerizim where he has these, these folks slaughtered. It went so badly for him after that event that he, he lost his job and it actually led him to take his own life in suicide. Pilate was a man who lusted after celebrity status and power. He put his career before everything. And we know that because when he lost his career, he actually considered his life not even worth living anymore and takes his own life. He loved his career. He lived for his career for himself. And so as Jesus stands before Pilate, the religious leaders have charged him with claiming to be king. You can imagine Pilate's curiosity sort of perking up, right? He's probably had dreams and aspirations that would be similar. He would love to be king. I mean, that's ultimate, right? And so I'm sure he, he aspired to similar grounds, similar goals. And then this dialogue, you see as we continue reading in the text, verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And Jesus responds in sort of a cryptic way here. He's neither directly affirming or denying this accusation. It's possible that Jesus' intention here in in the way that he replies is, well, yes, I am king, but certainly not in the way that you could imagine or that you're thinking or that I'm being charged with. We're not certain, but that would certainly align with John chapter 18, verse 36, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Certainly, Jesus didn't deny being king. It was just that they didn't understand in what sense he was meaning ultimate authority and not some earthly authority. Well, the chief priests get that he's being vague. You know, they're over here. They're plotting. They've been plotting since Mark chapter 3. We're going to try to destroy this guy, Jesus. And they get him finally before Pilate. And Jesus is being so vague that they're not sure that they're going to get the sentence that they want. And so verse 3, you see that they accused him of many things. Luke chapter 
23, verse 2 actually gives us more detail here in Luke's gospel. It says that the, the religious leaders, they said that we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Not true. And he's saying himself that he is the Christ, a king. And they were urgent in saying he stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee all the way to this place. This is what my mama would call a bold-faced lie. They're going to say or do whatever they have to do at this point to make sure that Jesus' fate is death. And Pilate replies in verses 4 and 5, back in Mark now, You have no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus' silence here and all of these accusations, his silence is his most eloquent answer, and it works. And Pilate was convinced of his innocence. The other Gospels actually show us the rest of the details. Luke tells us that Pilate from here sent Jesus to Herod. And even when Jesus stood before Herod, Jesus kept uh, silent. He remained silent even there. And Herod sent back to Pilate saying, he's done nothing deserving of death. I can't find anything to convict him of death for. John, in John's Gospel, records that Pilate actually takes Jesus back into the palace and questions him personally. Takes him inside where he's by himself with Pilate. He questions him and that's where Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. He explains it a bit more and says, yeah, what they're saying is sort of true, but my kingdom's not of this world. And Pilate saw the truth. Pilate was able to reason through this and see that, that Jesus was not some radical, bloodthirsty revolutionary that was out to overthrow Rome. That wasn't his point. But yet that he was a victim to the envy of these religious elite. He saw the truth. Pilate understood that he was being plotted against. And so you have in John chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. He's not guilty. And here's where it all went upside down for Pilate. To this point, Pilate's Pilate's understanding, he's hearing it, he's reasoning, and it's making sense. But here's where it goes upside down for Pilate. Uh, Here's where we can see firsthand that self-centeredness will cost you your soul. Right? I mean, think about what's unfolding. The Sanhedrin is livid. There's no way that Jesus is getting off the hook here. They want him dead. Yet Pilate's in a tough spot because he had to maintain peace within the region. That's his whole job. And we know his job is ultimate priority. It's his chief end. I mean, that's all Pilate is living for is advancing through the ranks in his career, this self-centeredness. And so if his only job is to maintain peace, that's the way he keeps his job, and these Jewish religious leaders are, are, are upset. They're livid. They're mad. What's he going to do? So then he has this idea. He says it's the tradition at this time during Passover to release a prisoner of the people's choosing. It's kind of strange. Um, but he had a prisoner that was convicted, a notorious criminal, uh, one that had broken numerous Jewish rules. But on top of that, he was a murderous thief. And they had caught him. And Pilate would give the crowd a choice. And Pilate's thinking, he was certain that these folks would choose Jesus over the criminal, right? They're going to choose the guy who's been full of compassion and mercy and has done miracles and over this guy who's a murderous thief. So it would get him off the hook. His ends would be accomplished, but he wouldn't be the one at fault. Peace would be secured in the region. His job would be maintained. Yet Pilate was blown away by their response. You see it in verses 9 through 15. Let's read together. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate's getting it. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, 
what, uh, then what shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, or at least for them, Barabbas. You see, Pilate's miscalculation here left him no choice. The crowd had grown to a riot. It was out of control. So to quench the crowd and keep his job, he releases Barabbas. And Pilate, the one who could have stopped it all, the one who could have put an end to these shenanigans, he caved in. Why? Because his career, his social position, his power was what he worshipped. It was his God. And there was no way that he was putting his career, all that he had worked for, all that he had accomplished on the line for this guy Jesus that he had no clue about. All he knew was that he was innocent and these guys were plotting against him, but even that was not enough that he would go to bat for this guy. Why? Because he worshipped everything that he had accomplished, his life, his self-centeredness. And so lest we judge Pilate too quickly, church, how many people today, perhaps even in this room, reject Jesus to protect position or maybe an upcoming promotion at work or respect in their vocational community? How many of us so quickly reject Jesus when it gets tough or when we get a funny look? How many of us will only go so far with Jesus but then shirk back because of a sarcastic smile or an awkward silence? Self-centeredness, friends, leads to a rejection of Jesus. And let me encourage you, church, be a Paul and not a Pilate, right? Be a Paul and not a Pilate. Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and then also the Gentile. Be a Paul, church family. Don't shirk back. Don't be ashamed of the gospel regardless of what it costs you. Vocationally, with your family, financially, we see that's what happens in Pilate's life. He understood. He saw, he saw the phony trial that was taking place and what the religious establishment was up to. And he caved because his career, his own life, was more important than Jesus. So we see a rejection because of fake piety or false religion. We see a rejection because of self-centeredness. There's a third rejection that takes place in the text, and it comes from exalting political views. So exalting political views leads to rejection of Jesus. Same passage, 8 through 15, that you've already heard read. I'll read it for you again because the emphasis is different. Listen to the crowd's response here. Not for Pilate, but what the crowd is doing. And the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? But he perceived that it was out of, the envy, out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd, have him release for them Barnabas instead. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil thing has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. You may wonder, Matt, I hear you read that, but I don't hear anything about politics in there. How are you getting an exalted political view being something that would lead to a rejection of Jesus? Well, you need to know a little bit about this guy, Barabbas, to understand that. 
You see, Barabbas um, is, is, is a character in the text that's, that's, that's pivotal for us. Mark is presenting him for us for a very specific reason. Kent Hughes tells us in his commentary that there's, there's actually a bit of dark or grim poetry taking place in the text. You may not see this immediately unless there's one translation of the Bible that you have that kind of points this out. You see, Barabbas means son of the father. Bar means son of, and Abba, which you would know, means father. So you put them together, and son of the father is who's standing before us. And some of the Greek manuscripts in the New Testament actually tell us that his first name, his given name, was Jesus. If you have a New English translation, in Matthew chapter 27, your English translation even calls him Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of the father. And here's where this gets a bit grim. Here's where this is some dark poetry taking place before us in the text. The crowd preferred Jesus Barabbas as opposed to Jesus Bar-Joseph, who was the real son of the father. Why? Why would they choose this Barabbas, this murderer over Jesus? Well, here's where it gets really political. Barabbas was a violent, bloodthirsty Messiah that Israel really wanted. Barabbas is a zealot. And zealots were political activists. They were extremists in every sense of the word. They hated Rome. They hated everything Rome stood for. They hated the tyranny that Rome had um, toward Israel and over Israel. And so they advanced their agenda to overthrow Rome through terrorism and through acts of violence. An example would be that the the zealots, they had a a secret party within their movement called the Sicarii. And the Sicarii actually meant, Sicarii, that, that, that word, it meant dagger men. And the Sicarii, they would, they would carry these daggers, these curved daggers that could be hidden in the fold of their robes. They carried them with them so that they could sneak up on Roman soldiers and politicians and stab them in the back through the ribs and with this curved dagger pierce their heart. So that even in crowds, even in places where people are gathered, they could do this without being noticed. They were assassins. I don't know that that's what Barabbas was, but he was politically associated with this group, these zealots. And we know that he's a murderer. (laughs) And so here's, here's the deal. Many in Israel, in their twisted way of thinking, saw Barabbas as a patriot. They saw him as a political hero. Possibly even someone that God would send who would set them free from the Romans politically. I mean, think even in our, in our context, think even soldiers in the American Revolution fighting for the independence of our nation. They thought, they thought a guy like this who would put his life on the line and, and, and kill these Romans, he's the kind of Messiah we want. He's going to set us free from Rome. And so the crowd was swayed because they saw in Barabbas not a murderer but a Messiah. And they saw in Jesus not a Messiah but some meek do-gooder. They had it twisted. Their political views had blinded them. They were so blinded by their political loyalties that they chose lawlessness instead of righteousness. The crowd was so blinded by their political expectations that that they chose violence instead of love. Their political loyalties had blinded them to the point that they chose war instead of peace. And the world is very much the same today. Our context is very similar. And sadly, the church is very much like this today as well. And friends, it's not my goal this morning to spend time in talking about politics or to pontificate and tell you how you should vote or what political um, concerns you should have. But church family, it's a sad thing when Christians have attitudes like, well, if you hold that political view, there's no way you can be a follower of Christ. Or or if if, if you vote for that person, there's no way you can be a true follower of Jesus. Or if, if you're with that political party, there's no way you can be a conservative Christian. 
Friends, whether it's immigration issues or gun rights or the issue of tearing down monuments or the issue of standing during the national anthem or the presidential race, friends, we are followers of Jesus Christ first. And, and here's, here's the reality. We bow at the feet of Jesus before we hold any political view or any patriotic convictions. We march under the banner of his shed blood before we are Republican or Democratic or Democrat. We miss the cross. We reject our king when we exalt temporary political convictions to a place of worship. And God forbid that one soul go to hell because they're turned off to the gospel. Not because the gospel is offensive, because the gospel is offensive. But God forbid that one soul would go to hell because they heard a quote-unquote Christian in some rant over a political view. And I'm not even, I'm not even speaking about what views we get passionate about. Certainly we should be passionate about things that God is passionate about. I'm talking about being bent out of shape and being unchristian in our behavior because of our political views. Eternal matters are at stake. Don't let temporary things blind you to those eternal matters. And here's the reality. Every one of these individuals in this crowd on this day were so consumed with their loyalties to Israel that they they missed the Messiah. They missed their Savior. They missed the one who came to shed his blood for them. I pray it would not be the case for the church in America. Number four. Number four. Worshiping social acceptance. Worshiping social acceptance leads to rejection of Jesus. Let's continue reading in verse 16. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. And they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. These Roman soldiers had no vested interest in Jesus either way. He was just a guy for them. Yet Mark is careful to tell us in verse 16 that the whole battalion of soldiers tortured Jesus like a cat toying with a mouse before devouring it. The whole battalion. History would tell us that that would be 600 Roman soldiers. 600 bloodthirsty men beating one man in unrelenting torture. And like blood in the ocean with sharks, these soldiers pounced on Jesus like a feeding frenzy. And in the Gospels, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, especially in Mark, as it's the shortest of the Gospels, the focus in the passion narrative is not on Jesus' physical suffering. As you read through the Gospels, as great as his suffering was, that's not the primary focus. And he's mocked and he's ridiculed and he's spit upon, and that's not the primary focus either. The focus in the Gospel narratives... Is, is always the, the spiritual and psychological suffering that Christ endured. Yet, as we read through this this morning, friends, we would be remiss if we passed over the physical suffering of Jesus without feeling it, without seeing what he's enduring and knowing our part in that. It says they scourged Jesus. A criminal in this day, this type of punishment, a criminal will be stripped of his clothes, tied to a post or a pillar. Uh, usually hugging the post or pillar so that his skin is taut 
across his back. The scourging was carried out by a flagellum whip. Uh, you may have heard it called a, na- a cat of nine tails, but basically leather straps that are braided together with bone and lead shrapnel mixed into it. Eusebius, again, fourth century historian, records in his histories that uh, people were torn by these scourges deep down into their deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, that is, their entrails and their organs, were exposed to sight. Uh, Roman law set no limits on how many lashes could be made. As we read through Deuteronomy, you, you remember that Jewish law did set limits on how far you could go with something like this. Roman law did not, and so oftentimes criminals collapsed and even died as a result of the physical mutilation that would take, take place. Their bodies with so much pain would go into shock and they would pass out. The whip would have left Jesus so broken up that his bones and muscles were exposed. Um, Prophecy from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, being fulfilled. That his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What is Isaiah saying? What's the reality with Jesus here? It was hardly recognizable as even human. His body was so beaten and broken. His head had a crown of thorns placed on it with large spike-like thorns that they, by the way, beat into his forehead with a reed. They put a robe on him in mockery. They gave him a stick as a reed, as a scepter. Again, mocking him as a, as a quote-unquote king. They continue to spit on him. This has now been happening for two days and to insult him. They kneel before him and worship him in mockery as king of the Jews. And in all of this, the question is why? Why is it that they would do this to Jesus, someone who's exhibited nothing but compassion and love? And I think the question has a couple answers. And so one, from a human perspective, they are worshiping, and we see from a human perspective, what it looks like to worship social acceptance, right? They had no problem with Jesus. These these 600 soldiers, this battalion of Roman soldiers, they had no personal hate or animosity towards Jesus. As far as they're concerned, he's just a peasant, He's just a religious man who's misguided. He's not done anything to them. He's done no despicable crime. He's not lashed out at them personally. He's not not tried to be defensive and, and strike back. And yet the whole battalion, the text says, is doing this. Teenagers, you've heard, we always give this example. If all your friends jump off a cliff, would you jump off? Or all your friends jump off a bridge, would you jump off? And in my experience, bridge jumping and cliff jumping is pretty fun. So I think that's a pretty bad example. Uh, don't do anything illegal, kids. Uh, but that's pretty fun. I think we need to up the ante a bit and encourage with realistic temptation. And I think it's this. If all our peers are rejecting Jesus, will you also reject Jesus? Because that's what's going on here. They're, they're being crowd pleasers. They're just going with the flow. These Roman soldiers have no dog in this fight. Except for the fact that here's a a, a guy that we can whoop the snot out of and pulverize to a pulp. And that's what they're doing because that's what all their buddies are doing. I told you this had two answers though. So one, they're worshiping social acceptance. They're just going with the flow. They're doing what all their friends are doing. There's there's one sense in which that's the case from a human perspective. But there's another sense in in which they're doing this and 
From a divine perspective, Mark is showing us yet again the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw it last week with Peter, that Peter lies, he denies that he ever even knew Jesus, and yet he gets to go free. Nothing happens, no consequences. Jesus tells the truth, on the other hand, that he is indeed the Messiah and he's condemned to death. The guilty goes free and the innocent is taken and is is suffering a penalty. That's the gospel. That's the case for every one of of, of us, that, that we're sinners, that we're the guilty, and we get to go free if we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ. That's the gospel. And Mark is showing it again to us this week with Barabbas. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's guilty of sin. And yet he's released and he gets to go free. And Jesus, on the other hand, who is innocent, he's perfect, he's full of grace and mercy and compassion, he takes the beating, he takes the death penalty of the guilty criminal. That's the gospel, friends. Mark is hammering us with the reality of who we are. We are criminals. We are the murderers. You say, Matt, I've not ever killed anyone. I don't know what you're talking about. The Bible tells us if anyone hates his brother, he's a murderer. We're all guilty. Spiritually, we are guilty criminals before God. And Mark is simultaneously showing exactly what God has done on our behalf. The sinless, eternal Son of God has tasted death so that we don't have to. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus endured rejection at the hands of false piety. Jesus endured rejection at the hands of self-centeredness. He endured rejection that was politically motivated. He endured rejection because some dudes were simply going with the flow and doing what their buddies did. But here's the reality, friends. Jesus endured rejection at the hands of the Father because every one of us in this room are guilty criminals. He endured our rejection. He endured our penalty. Sinclair Ferguson says this, and we'll conclude with this quote. Without knowing it, the religious leaders and Pilate and Barabbas were all a part of a tapestry of grace which God was weaving for sinners. Their actions spoke louder than their words, louder than the cries of the crowd for Jesus' blood. Jesus was not dying for his own crimes, but for the crimes of others, not for his own sins, but for our sins. And then Ferguson asked this most important question. It's the question I want to leave us with. Have you seen what they were all too blind to see? Because of whatever thing they were worshiping that day, whatever thing their their hearts were set upon, they missed the Savior. They rejected Jesus because they were too blind to see it. Today, will you be too blind to see what Christ has done for you? Or will you yield and repent of your sins and trust what this King has done on your behalf?